Hello, and thank you for listening to Let the Right Films In, a podcast about dead girls dying in movies. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, today, yes. Uh, we are back after a brief break, but before we get into that, I am your host, Tyler Hannon, remembering how to do things. And with me, as always, newly married, brand new name, it's Kayla Pate. Hello. <laughs> It's my fault that we didn't have episodes because I got married. <laughs> Sorry. Had to do it. But you just socially distanced. You had it outside. You trimmed down that guest list. Oh, yeah. It was really fun. We had a really nice and lovely time, and I really enjoyed it. Yeah. But obviously the entire time I couldn't even focus on my wedding because I was like, we haven't talked about movies for the internet in so long. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I love this podcast, but I've focused on my wedding over the podcast. I'm sorry. But now you're married. <laughs> yeah. And you're probably, I mean, I don't think you have another wedding on the horizon, right? Nope. Okay. So I don't think any of the people who think that we are having another wedding listen to this podcast. So. Ah, <laughs> uh, But yes, uh, we are here to talk about two movies we picked in September. I feel very heavy now. Yeah, they definitely feel heavy now. They felt heavy then, but somehow worse now. Today we are talking about Agnes Varda's 1985 film Vagabond and David Lynch's 1992 film Twin Peaks Firewalk With Me. First, we are going to dive into Vagabond. As I said, it was directed and written by Agnes Varda. It stars Sandrine Bonnier and has the distinct honor of winning Best Director, Best Film, Best Leading Actress, and Best Supporting Actress at the 1986 César Awards, which the Césars are like the French Oscars and the French consider them to be way more important than the Oscars, so dope for Varda. Also won the Golden Lion at the Venice Film Festival, meaning that it shares exactly one thing in common with the Todd Phillips film Joker. Uh, in French, the original title was Saint-Trois-Nila, uh, which means with neither shelter or law, uh, and was roughly translated in most English-speaking countries as simply vagabond. As always, with our Criterion episodes, we will be giving a summary of each movie. So if you don't want any spoilers, make sure to uh, pause this and go watch the movies before you continue to listen. So without further ado. <laughs> I was going to say, the interesting about these movies, though, I guess, spoiler is they, they both start say, showing, like, with maybe not showing you, but like telling you that the girl dies. And then we see how they die. Yes, both of these movies deal with protagonists who you know will be dead by the end of the movie. One of them is shockingly clear and, like, although being nonlinear is very easy to understand, makes a lot of sense. The other one is Twin Peaks. <laughs> uh, but before we get into that, the summary for Vagabond is as follows. Mona Bergeron, a young drifter, is discovered dead in a ditch. 
The police rule her death as an open and shut case of natural causes. An omniscient narrator explains that she investigated the last weeks of Mona's life and discovered the impact she made on those around her. The film then shifts into various vignettes from the final days of Mona's life, including time spent squatting in a chateau, on the road with a prestigious female professor, living with a shepherd who also was once a drifter, and working in a vineyard with a Tunisian immigrant. These episodes show Mona to be a rebellious, nihilistic young woman who values her freedom above all else. Eventually, she is caught up in the woes of living, quote, on the road. Hunger, unwanted attention from men, alcoholism, and finally, cold and sick, she falls to her death to be discovered, bringing the film full circle. Interviews with the people who met her paint her as both a romantic figure, a tragic casualty of individualism, an irredeemable vagrant, and much more. The truth lies somewhere in the middle, and it is only by spending time with her before her untimely demise that the audience can grasp the full picture. And even still afterwards, people, the way, what people take away from this movie can vary greatly because Barda does not hold your hand, like really in terms of that portrayal. Like she portrays all these things and people, like honestly, it like really is kind of a reflection of the people viewing it and their points of view, which became clear just like reading articles and like some reviews really like leading with like, Mona is an unlikable character, but, you know, like, Kayla, to be frank, I am a complete neophyte uh, to the works of Agnes Barda, and I really only know her by reputation, and the fact that she, in the at the end of her life, she was, like, became, like, a meme, almost, in terms of, like, internet, like, at least, like, in, an internet celebrity, in a way. Yeah, I would say that Varda is definitely kind of an embarrassing blind spot for me in my film buff history as well. I first remember, it's it's really funny actually because I've wanted to watch this film for a lot of years because I remember vaguely in 2013 or 2014 on Tumblr, I saw a gift set from this movie that had like a really basic summary that was something like uh mona comes out of the sea and she's a drifter and then she's dead and the whole movie is about how she died which is like i guess true but not really (laughs) at the same time and it was a movie that for a really long time was really hard to track down in the place that i lived without trying to watch it illegally which i did not have the patience to do (laughs) because it's uh, annoying and so it was always kind of this cipher to me. And I, I'm definitely excited to delve more into her filmography now that it's all readily available on the Criterion channel. But I agree that I know her mostly by reputation. And I think that it's funny sometimes how these like larger than life directors kind of become internet memes like that. And it's not even to say that they become memes in a disparaging way, but Agnes Varda was a trailblazing filmmaker who quite literally created the French new wave before Jean-Luc Godard had ever even conceptualized a film, married one of the most famous men in French film history And is so famous in her own right that I did not even know about that until I read her Wikipedia page a week ago. And not only directed some of the most influential fictional movies of French cinema, but was also a fierce, um, a fiercely valued documentarian who, you know, worked to 
cover the Black Panthers, um, feminism in France, just all of these things that are obviously like causes that are near and dear to us. And despite the fact that I, I believe that film Twitter, as it were, has a very like I don't believe that they're doing it out of any disrespect or anything, but it is a little silly to reduce her to like cute grandma with bowl cut when she is such a, a force of film history. And I guess that we're also, I guess, a little complicit in that because we're admitting on microphone that we are not super studied in her film, but I think that we have a chance to correct that now. So I don't know. For me, this was a movie that had definitely suffered a little bit from being very built up in my head of something that I'd wanted to see for a very long time. So it took me kind of, I would say probably 20 to 25 minutes to sort of settle into it and into the vibe of it, which is very lonely, very sparse, very dully colored, I guess is the best way to describe it. It's very gray and pallid. It's set in the winter in France and it's very singularly about this girl just kind of drifting around. And I couldn't help but think when I was watching it that this would be like extremely your shit. Especially thinking about how like Carnival of Souls is one of your favorite movies. So I guess I'm curious how maybe for somebody who hadn't had at least like a a sort of idea of what to expect from this film. Like what your first reaction to it was and how you felt about it. Well, it is up like this is like prime like love to suffer stuff for me like it doesn't feel as grim as many movies that make me feel that way like like an Ari Aster or something Mm -hmm. like it didn't like honestly it didn't really feel grim at all which is not to say that nothing grim happens because clearly it does but like frankly I spent a lot more time like just kind of diving into the background of this movie and Agnes like for the first time really learning more detail about Agnes Varda as like a filmmaker and a person and a photographer uh, and like just, and getting delighted by the fact that like when it comes to her style, like it's all here Mm -hmm. and it makes sense because this is like three decades into her movie making career. And is often considered like her piece de resistance. Right. And like you, you read the stuff about her style and it's all there. Like the blend of like, documentary style with like actual narrative feature the use of non-professional actors the fear like the left wing like the left wing politics they focused on female protagonists and also like outsiders vagabonds and such um it's just like just really seems like it's all there um like just reading this stuff after the fact and i did so I do tend to try to like read stuff after the fact with these movies and especially people that I'm really new to with um like fat girl and piano teacher were kind of similar situations for me less so with Hanukkah, but still, uh, but yeah, no, I really liked it. I found I'm just a real sucker for just like pictures of humanity and structures and how we relate to each other and the effect they have on people in like, clear but not underlined ways and the nuances between them it's a real uh and how just there's there's so much there it's deceptively simple yeah i look i look forward to taking more of her work but i think that from what i've read that is part of her thing too is like it's so experimental in some ways 
to the point where like i don't know if we have an american equivalent of this blend of narrative and documentary like what do we think of when we think of like faux documentary stuff like we think of like found footage horror and like comedies like the like the office i was just gonna say like borat right (laughs) stuff that like very much like seems very aware and like wants you to know what it's doing too whereas this like for long like the interviews are like common throughout but even the people being interviewed just the way i had to like rewind it and double check and like look it up and be like they are hypothetically being interviewed and every now and then you catch glimpses of whoever the person's talking to, but it's not an interviewer. It's not, these people are like having conversation. It seems like these people are having conversations with people in their lives, but it like the way that it's framed, it looks like an interview. And sometimes they're having a conversation with someone off camera. Sometimes they're looking directly into the camera and with the maid, she breaks the fourth wall and just like, as she's doing things, just talks to the camera and that is just like it's just like uh i guess it's like one of those things where like revolutionary ballsy shit but also like in a way blink and you'll miss it you can also see the echoes of that throughout film history after that i think like some of the things that i thought of like one example in in just french film is in Amelie, there are similar kind of fourth wall break asides like that, or a narrator steps in to mention something. And with the like head on directly to the camera, I thought of Jonathan Demi a lot because that was kind of his signature move was to have uh, somebody speak directly into the camera. And I think that in Varda's case, it one of like, to state the obvious, invites us into the narrative of it as if we are the interviewer or as if we are being let in on the story of this like weird girl who drifted in and out of town. But I think the key difference between other movies in which we see this method used later, and I do think that a lot like there are definitely films that owe this film and Varda's technique a huge debt, is that because she is a female director and because she very much considered herself like the sole auteur of her film, she coined a term for it. Um, sin- Hold on, I gotta look it up. Sinecritur? Sinecritur. Sinecritur. She coined a term for it, Sinecritur. Which, yes, which is shorthand for cinematic writing, meaning that she is the director and the writer of the screenplay, but that those two things are intertwined in a way that can't be separated. You hear a lot about how, like, editing was a big, her favorite part of the process. Yeah, and I think that, you know, we touched on that a little bit when we talked about Fat Girl, when we talked about Brayla, you know, claiming sole authorship over the film and saying that everybody was, like, a pawn for her to use on set. I don't get quite that same vibe from Varda, but I think that her gaze is obviously present throughout the film, but that that gaze is different from the way that any other auteur would gaze upon these happenings. And it, it is just so different from a movie like Fire Walk With Me, which is by a man (laughs) and it's very clearly like steeped in male gaze and I think that that is what makes Vagabond so interesting is that Mona's not part like 
whatever. She's not particular. I won't say that she's unlikable because I liked her a lot. I think she's unsympathetic. But that's because she doesn't want you to feel sympathy for her. Like, she is an individual to the point of being a straight-up nihilist. She doesn't give a shit. She just didn't want to be a part of society anymore. And this was based on a real phenomena that happened in France around this time. And the character of Mona is even based on a drifter that Varda gave a ride to. And I believe that young woman has a cameo in the film. I'm not sure where, but it's in there somewhere. So, like, these were real young women who wanted to find a way to exist outside of the confines of society but when you are a young woman that is a lot more difficult than being like Emile Hirsch and Into the Wild you can't like you can I guess just pack up your stuff and go as Mona proves that you can but it's going to be much more fraught it's going to be much more difficult and people are much less likely to appreciate that mindset coming from a woman when a man does it it's like a Jack Kerouac on the road kind of thing when a woman does it it is a rejection of her millennia defined role as a caretaker as a an object as something to be desired and something to idealize and in Mona's case especially like everybody who meets her has a different take on her and at various points it's easy to kind of be influenced by that like the men see her as a dirty weirdo but that they could still have sex with her if they wanted to whereas the shepherd who was formerly a a professor sees her or I'm sorry a philosopher sees her as somebody who is just drifting out of existence because she has separated herself so fully. Is, you see the one who was also like used to be a drifter himself. Yes, yes. And so like sees her as himself and then discovers like, no, she's not like him. And he doesn't like that because he wanted to be able to mentor her into the version that he wanted to see. Whereas the female characters in the film see her as kind of this inspiring feminist ideal. Even if they don't want that life necessarily, there is something appealing about it. But even still, like with the professor, I think there's something fat. Like that was one of the ones that I found especially fascinating because she's a professor. She's a scholar. She cares about the environment and these trees so much and seems like this real, like, especially to like a very like liberal leftist audience, like, and I, like a, a person that they identify with or think like is one of the better people that she runs into. But she sees Mona as like not human for much of the time like she is a curio she's fascinating she's like she's not mean to her to her face but the way she talks about to her to her friend on the phone or to her boyfriend is very different and then it's not until she has this near-death experience by electrocution that it just like hits her that she just let this girl go and suddenly she cares about mona as like a human being in a way that she really didn't before that she she was a dirty drifter who was also like a fascinating curio was my read anyway which i I found because like that was like one like i I just think it's fat like one of the many ways that the just the relationships between people and the dehumanization that's present happens even with the good people is this is like one of the most likable people who helps her out the most and yet is in some ways very cruel indirectly. Yeah. And I mean, part of it is that as a society, we kind of moralize 
poverty and cleanliness. And when I was doing some research on this, like one of the things that Varda continually touched upon was that Mona's dirtiness sets her apart and it makes it so that even if she wanted to re-enter society, it would be a hurdle. And we are right now living through a time where there's some of the greatest wealth disparity in human history. And I think that this kind of class divide has only become exacerbated as the years have gone on since this film was released. And I think that we see these kinds of things happening in real life all the time. There are so like we live in a city that is populated with people like this professor. It's all like want to be liberal upper class people who are more than happy to donate to whatever cause of the week but when confronted with poverty in their faces it's a problem it's a nuisance or something to be curious about like it's solidarity yeah and that's like yeah I don't know it's it's depressing because it it's really easy to see that as like Mona's like one way out you know like she has this woman who can take care of her and mother her and feed her and whatnot but I think astutely regardless of whether or not she's fully cognizant of it like Mona knows that she doesn't want to be caged in by somebody who sees her that way and like even if the professor had found her like it probably wouldn't have changed anything it probably would have been similar to the farm like the the philosopher shepherd guy who like that was an option for mona to like get out but that was she could have taken that route if she wanted to go that route and then and i mean another like class is just like an over like they're like they're multiple like it is it's very intersectional movie in many ways the fact that she's a woman is like throughout the whole thing is an important part of it but class is like the more unspoken part of it where even when she finds with the migrant worker, the Tunisian Asun, yes, um, the migrant workers. That is like the one opportunity where she finds something that, like, maybe like that might be the place where she she finally found a way where, like, oh, I would be okay with it's like leaving my life. She possibly. wants it, right? She's like, this is a path I would like to take, and then it's a simple matter of she's rejected for being a woman. And it's like, yeah, that spoke to me too because like I think of Mona and he was like, okay, bye, whatever. Yeah, I know. It's terrible. And I think that like part of that is that like the way that men view women is very much as an ideal or as something to possess. And sometimes it's easier said than done. And I think that Asun didn't really want to put in the work of like fighting to have her stay because he had a good gig and he had a fun couple of weeks where he was getting laid but like overall like when I look at at that path for Mona and when I when I think about myself I I can kind of relate to that because like Mona says that she was um she graduated from vocational school she was a typist and a secretary and it was just so pointless to her and she hated it and it was miserable but when working on the like in the vineyard and cutting the vines and whatnot it's hard work but it's work that makes sense it serves a purpose and it's not just busy work and I think for me as somebody who in the past year quit a corporate job to work at a like a a physically laborious retail job I kind of get I understand that like there is like this corporate busy work that was just starting to become prescient in the 80s and is now like an all-consuming 
factor of our lives and contributing to the class divide that we see now. Like, I get it. Do you know what makes sense to me? Like stacking the lemons at the grocery store. And it's even dis- differentiated <laughs> from like the physical labor that was offered to on the farm because that in that sense, like that she has a boss and she's tied to the land. Whereas this is like the like, like the the vineyard one, like not tied to the land in the same way. Like you could find another vineyard and work that way. And like yeah. not having a boss in the same way either. I think it felt to me in a way that like the the potato farm was something she threw out as like an oh yeah I'd love to do that and he was immediately like okay so do it and it required a lot of startup work and it required staying in place with a situation that she didn't choose she was just trying to be put up for the night and not trying to suddenly have all of this responsibility and like family and whatnot thrown at her whereas with Asun she kind of she drifts by he offers her work and she does it and it's kind of just like okay and then I get money at the end of it you know like the reward of the potato field was having the land and working it but that's like not really the life that she's looking for like at the end of the day she is kind of driven by the same consumerism that we are driven by now and that like you want money to buy things that will make you feel better whether it's like food or alcohol or weed or some other vice like overall like that is what she wants is the freedom to have her vices spend money on them drift in and out where she wants and in a way that can be romantic but I do think that there is a point to it being a really lonely existence and to it being individualistic to the point of it being a depressing sort of nihilism. Like I can understand nihilism to a point, but I think that Mona is so cut off and so isolated that she has kind of shrouded herself in this protective numbness and that she doesn't even realize that she isn't even living the life that she set out to live. Like she tells uh, Madame Landier that she dropped out because champagne tastes better on the road. We don't see her drink a lot of champagne on the road. Okay. We see her get raped. We see her camp in a cemetery. We see her quite like literally freeze to death in a ditch. And she just doesn't realize that she's like inevitably trudging towards that ending and it's sad but it is also understandable because I feel like we're always kind of chasing that like what thing is going to make me feel better what life will make me feel as free as I can within the confines of a society that has already decided how we should live our lives and maybe we don't all end up dead in a ditch over it but I don't know. That's kind of, I guess, the shepherd's main point is that they've both chosen a way to settle into their existence and his was to be warm and fed instead of staying on the road and hers was to fight to the bitter end to set herself apart. The end is also, I mean, the point of it is obviously like how unavoidable it was and how just like what a freak accident it was. And not even in like the traditional idea of a freak accident where something goes terribly wrong. But she just stumbles into a situation where some kind of like local prank tradition is being carried out. And like these dudes having their fun at the expense of the whoever happens to be there. It's just uh, like 
she just gets caught up in that, which, and somehow res- they weren't trying to chase her out from what I could tell. They were just doing some local shenanigans. She just we saw the people know. shutting up shop yeah. and she got caught up in it. And the result ended up outside of town and soaked in the freezing cold just because of this like wrong place, wrong time. Yeah. And it's, it's tragic because it's something that happens. It's happening right now to a million people, more than a million people all over. And I think that this is kind of the, like the laser focus that Varda is able to bring full circle is like how many people are found dead in a ditch and how many of them could have avoided being there by making better decisions or how many of them could have avoided being there if we as a society had a better safety net for those kinds of people. Cause like we see a lot of like intentional malevolence, but then almost as like, it's, I mean, maybe it's too simple to say almost as tragic, but like in the end, like this unintentional, like casual malevolence, like it is what kills her, but like is is just as dangerous. Like those guys did not have the same male- like it was still like shitty, but like they didn't have the intense, willful malevolence that like the guy who like we saw we see raper did. But like it has the same effect, I guess. That's what I'm trying to say. It ends, yeah, it ends with her being brutalized in yes. some way. And that lack of a safety net in multiple ways is the thing. Yeah. I mean, we as a society are really callous towards people who are experiencing houselessness. And again, it's kind of that like moralizing of impoverished people. Like, oh, she had like all of the tools to succeed. And yet here she is camping out in the winter and like being drunk in the train station. But what led her there was a series of really depressing things. Like if you think about it, she was raped in the woods. She found a place where she thought she was going to be able to make an honest living and maybe have like a decent relationship with somebody who understands her. And instead she's kind of thrown out and falls in with these drifters who want to use her as an object, as like a catch for more money. And when the going gets tough like she is left they leave her immediately as well and i think that it is that loneliness and that isolation that is what leads to her like cold and alone and when she falls it's just the last straw and she is just literally too tired to get up and we kind of push that exhaustion on people when we refuse to help them when we find somebody to be unsympathetic and unlikable I feel like that is where we as a society have to do better. Like everybody deserves life. Everybody deserves resources, whether or not they are sympathetic, whether or not we like them, whether or not we agree with their choices, like baseline human decency (laughs) dictates that we should care more about them. And I think that a lot of people really, believe that they do like Madame Landier is, an, is a great example of that she's like oh I gave her some food I gave her some money I sent her on her way I have set her up for success and then she realizes like I just sent a fucking teenage girl into the woods and it's winter <laughs> like you know like the best intentions <laughs> can often lead to the greatest tragedies I guess yeah I just it's a, a truly and, and again like it's so focused in a way that like I picked these two movies because I thought it was interesting to compare and contrast 
two films where you know that the protagonist is dead at the outset of the film. But I feel like this film is so much about so many different things. Yes. Whereas Twin Peaks is very much just about the tragedy of Laura Palmer. And, and about so many things in ways that are cohesive yes. and coherent. And just like, that's where, that's where like, so experimental in the like in, in the structure and creation but so simple in the story and again and it's just about the world both on like a broad structural level involving like gender and class and society and human beings but also just on a personal level just like each individual human being has their own story kind of thing it's like that sonder thing of realizing that everybody around you has an intricate life and that you have to like grapple with that sometimes that everyone around you has a life exactly as intimate and detailed as yours. It's like this, such a s- simple text in some ways creates like a rich tapestry. Yeah, well, that, that, say, that, that's a single human life. And that, and that's what I mean when I say that it's a deceptively simple film and that it's not. It's a film that echoes through film history afterwards. And so when you go back to the source, it seems familiar even though it is the pioneer in the same way that maybe something like Citizen Kane is <laughs> so familiar because it is so copied and so prescient throughout film history. And maybe that's like a, an insane comparison, but like I would say that Varda is equally, if not more important to film history than Orson Welles. And it's a, it, it was a movie, it's a movie that made it immediately clear why she's so important just because like, it seems like, just like a miracle like so like and it may echo through and be familiar but i don't know it still felt so just like impossible in a way just to have such like the breaking of the fourth wall and like the the flux like the 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 structure and but also to like the story underneath it is shines about beyond the structure it is not like like, it might be experimental for experimental it doesn't feel just for experimental sake yeah even if that were like even if that were part of the formulation of it i don't know i mean it's an artist at the height of her um well maybe not at the height but it is an artist who has fully realized her vision mm-hmm. who has fully understood the thesis that she set out to create and i think that obviously before and after this varda made a lot of great films but it's clear to me why people say that this is her magnum opus. And I think that it's, I don't know. It it was incredible. Like I said, it took me about 20 minutes to kind of settle into it because it's, it's hard in a way these days to settle into a film that is so quiet and that is so focused (laughs) and isn't just throwing a bunch of bombastic images at you, which made the following film even harder to kind of parse out when considering considering it in the context of Varda's oeuvre. Yeah, and just like even we don't have like the time or like in case like the deep knowledge here to get into like the French New Wave and all that, but even just diving into that some of fast like fascinating, especially with Varda being my entry point into the fact that like she was the only woman she her work technically predates the french new wave which is part of how she's considered like the mother of it and so while she's inextricable foundational part of it she's also like beyond it like she is not like restricted to it 
So she was done with it before it even started, basically. Right. And I will say that seeing... And that's just like, that's just... I don't know. That's kind of fascinating. It almost feels a little like, not that like I shouldn't get into the French new wave because like there isn't another Agnes Varda, but it just, I don't know, almost like disappointing in a way. I mean, I would, I would say for me as, as a woman, it, and having seen a Godard, like Godard films and other French new wave artists, like they are interesting studies of this kind of like cinema verite, a day in the life, vignette kind of thing. But like, Again, I think that for me, at least, like, it's just always going to be more compelling coming from a woman and the difference between a character like Mona and Gene Seberg's character in Breathless as like the pinnacle of like French New Wave girl. Like it just they don't compare. <laughs> I, I wonder. So, like, I mean, in a lot of what I read got into how Varda kind of put herself in the center of her like the of her work at the end of her life to point of Varda by Agnes and uh, faces places but like put herself like in front of it and like made herself a force in many ways and I don't know I guess I wonder how like how much of that was intentionally because she is this legendary female filmmaker there's as much as we could talk about how it simplifies and like that kind of internet meme fandom like an rbg thing or whatever like simplifies and sands down or like excludes important details about like a person and turns them into like a meme how there can be value in that and having like we're about to talk about a david lynch movie like who is do we have like a female david like not necessarily someone who needs to be a female david lynch but you know like just this exceptional artist beyond fit. like there's there's value in agnes sparta turning into well and i i think that there's a difference between being canonized as an internet meme and, and carving out your own legacy and i think that in the last years of her life varda knew that not that her work hasn't been lauded and not that she hasn't been spoken about but it's a sad fact that female auteurs are never placed on the same level as a male auteur. And I think that by kind of reclaiming that narrative and placing herself at the center of it and really standing up for herself and explaining herself, she was able to cement her place in film history in a way. Thank you. You found better words. Yeah. Of being like, I am important and you're going to listen to me explain why I'm important and that resulted in this kind of like internet celebrity and i don't know if that was quite the intention but yes there is a value in it but i think that the value comes from her putting her foot down and demanding the respect that she deserved and outlining the value of her own work and her own career well just even just reading the simple sentence in like an article or obituary or whatever where like there wasn't really another like she's the mother of French New Wave, and there was another woman in French New Wave. It's like, how did she feel about that? <laughs> like, she had to like know that, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And just another stray thought I had about this is just like, Werner Herzog is another like person who come like another foreign filmmaker who comes to mind. But this fluency and like this fluency with both narrative and documentary in like these foreign directors sometimes like fused together like like in this movie where it's like narrative with the trappings of documentary in a way but just like that they could go back and forth too like 
I don't I feel like we do not have many vaunted, especially vaunted directors who are like do documentary and narrative. What what's up? We have one. <clears throat> it's legendary filmmaker James Cameron. Is quite literally the only example I can think of. And that is obviously completely different because James Cameron is a blockbuster film director right. and a dude who's weirdly obsessed with the Titanic and the ocean. Right. But like Titanic is very much born out of his obsessive need to be a documentarian of Titanic. And then he did it. <laughs> and that doesn't come across on the screen. But yeah, you're like in, ter- like in terms of the literal sense of makes a bunch of documentaries, but also makes feature films like in, and is like unsuccessful in both realms. God, that's what we fucking deserve in the American film industry. James Cameron is of course what we would get. Like if you think about the yeah. way that American film history has developed and the way that where we are now with our much discussed uh, issues with the film industry and with um, cinematic universe fatigue and whatnot, we fucking deserve well, James Cameron as as the documentarian. And with the occasional <laughs> exception, like we don't have a lot of documentary hits. I know there there are I, they're not coming to mind, but I know there's some recent examples of some documentarians of recent years who've made. But like, yeah, there's like it seems like maybe maybe we just also see the most famous examples, but it doesn't seem that way. Yeah. But like in foreign film, of these people who like can go back and forth between the two, and like yeah, that like. They're not James Cameron successful. It's almost like when you have tax subsidies set aside for arts funding, it makes good artists. Like, I don't. It's just it's interesting looking at Agnes Varda's filmography and like there are these gaps, especially in narrative films. Like, no, she was still doing a bunch. Like, she was still overall great lady. Very, yeah, great <laughs> film. I can't wait to watch more. Like, I, I clearly like, especially. Like that's an easy thing to say, but like I, it's not just the impressiveness of the work and the richness of it, but also just I crave more of it. Like this is like watching was just like this. This rules. Yeah. <laughs> and for our listeners' viewing pleasure, I believe that the complete works of Agnes Varda are currently all streaming on the Criterion Channel, as the complete Agnes Varda collection was just released. Um, and now that I've seen this, got to admit that it's looking mighty fine for my next spontaneous 50% off Criterion purchase, yes. even though it's like an insane commitment. <laughs> One of the things I find value in doing this podcast, we mentioned it beforehand, is like, I feel like a real pleb in some circumstances, but I do th- I'm like, not just to justify our own existence, but like, I do think there's value in like, seriously, like seriously approaching these like this like vaunted work and it being like okay you have to be new at some point <laughs> you know like and i do think there's also value in like dissecting it from the start and we'll get into this more with the next movie and director but like i find value in the fact that i wasn't like steeped in david lynch from the age i was 18 on i feel like it feels like i don't know and i guess like with Var like varda and lynch i'm equating them too much i probably because we paired them together but like uh in both cases i think there's some value there's definitely value like just it's never too late it's never too late to get into yeah, that stuff I think, yeah i think that that's a really um a really valuable thing that this podcast does for me as well is that i've been flirting with like being a serious film person since i was a teenager but there are still clearly huge yeah. gaps in my knowledge because there's so much to consume and and i like trashy horror yeah. As much as I like, 
yeah and i mean that's totally fair like being a film fan really contains multitudes and i think that like it's easy to forget that sometimes and, and it it's easy to dismiss people because of lack of stuff too i don't yeah it's, it's, it's complicated yeah so i mean i think that that's really all that we have to say about varda i i'm sure that as we continue on our criterion journey that she'll come up again <laughs> probably sooner rather than later since we both really liked her our, our next phase of the podcast is just let agnes varda in just varda, yeah. just varda, in. varda only um but yeah unless you have anything else you want to switch gears absolutely all right i know you're excited I, honestly i am uh, there is a lot to talk about here so my secret diary that page is missing there is no other person who could have known where it was did bobby give you this or is there someone new She likes. This fair warning, this summary is a lot longer than the other one. Sorry in advance. So the next film we'll be discussing is David Lynch's 1992 film Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, which serves as both a prequel and in some scenes a sequel to the hit television show, Twin Peaks. It was directed and written by David Lynch, uh, co-written by Robert Engel. Notably, uh, his television creative partner, Mark Frost, was absent from the production of this film. It stars Cheryl Lee and Ray Wise. It was famously critically panned upon release, famously maligned at the 1992 Cannes Film Festival, though rumors of booing may be greatly exaggerated. No one is really sure. And the summary is as follows. Try to keep up. (laughs) Uh, FBI director Gordon Cole, played by Lynch, sends field agents Chester Desmond and Sam Stanley to investigate the murder of teenage drifter and prostitute Teresa Banks in rural Oregon. The agents are given clues that the case will be difficult as the police department is hiding something and drugs are involved. Agent Desmond is also aware that the case is a, quote, blue rose case, meaning that there may be a supernatural element to it. Upon arrival in the town of Deer Meadow, the agents are met with only resistance and trouble from the local police force. However, when Agent Stanley discovers a small piece of paper with the letter T underneath Teresa's fingernail, they decide that a deeper forensic analysis is needed. Stanley leaves to take the body back to Portland, Oregon, while Desmond stays behind to investigate the supernatural aspect of the case. He disappears without a trace, and the case goes unsolved. Back at the FBI headquarters in Philadelphia, Cole and Agent Dale Cooper, who you will recognize as the star of the television show, have a collective vision of a long-lost colleague, played by David Bowie, who describes witnessing a meeting of mysterious spirits before disappearing again. Cooper heads to Oregon to investigate, but is unsuccessful. He tells a fellow agent that he has a feeling he knows who the next victim will be, a young blonde high schooler struggling with drug addiction, crying out for help. A year later, we meet Laura Palmer, living in the town of Twin Peaks, Washington. She has a best friend named Donna, a boyfriend named Billy, and lives a seemingly normal life. However, she has been dealing with an unseen demonic presence that she knows as Bob, which has been sexually assaulting her and threatening to possess her. 
While trying to unravel the mystery of Bob, she copes with cocaine, sex, and also prostitutes herself across the border in Canada. One day, a few of the mysterious spirits alert her that the man behind the mask is in her room. Rushing home, Laura sees Bob, but after fleeing the house, sees that it is in fact her father, Leland, leaving, and is struck by the realization that he is the one who has been assaulting her. She further unravels throughout the film, becoming more and more unstable, culminating in her being tied up in a cabin in the woods for an orgy, being dragged out of the cabin by her father, who is both himself and Bob. Another spirit arrives, but is unable to help Laura past giving her Teresa Banks's ring, which stops Bob from possessing her. In anger, he stabs her to death while Leland begs him not to do it. The possessed Leland then wraps her body in plastic and tosses her in the lake. Sorry. <laughs> there is so much going on in this movie. It feels important to note that I've never seen an episode of Twin Peaks. Um, and I, that was a bit intentional, too, yeah. because I thought, I'm like, <laughs> you know what? There are a lot of people who probably, like, dove into the, I'm like, I don't know. It just felt like kind of like a unique perspective. Of course, I have a certain cultural awareness of what happens in Twin Peaks. Right. And so, God, I... So, Kayla, how much, like, what is what is your relationship? Like, you've seen some Twin Peaks, right? Yeah. Figuring out where to start with this is really difficult because as a burgeoning film buff in high school, David Lynch is obviously one of the first and most obvious stops as, like, kind of the new wave American version of a lot of the themes that you begin to examine when you start to study film or try to appreciate film as an art. I don't know. I think it's almost more appropriate to talk about my relationship with David Lynch ahead of my relationship with Twin Peaks, because I have to be honest, I like the Twin Peaks oeuvre more than I like a lot of David Lynch's other work. Let's do that. Let's, let's talk. Because I, I, I think that is something I have like interested to talk about, too. But like, I think unpacking Lynch is like is the is because I think we come point. from different places, but not like neither the most traditional place. Yeah. So for me, David Lynch has always been a real struggle point for me because on paper, it seems like shit that I should vibe with, and I just, for the most part, I do not. And I think part of it is that I find him to be insufferable and sorry. To everyone in advance, I think he's a misogynist. I don't know if he is aware of the fact that he's a misogynist. I don't even think he means to be one in a malicious manner. And I don't want to take away from the experiences of women who connect so strongly with Twin Peaks and with Laura Palmer because I think that there is such a validity to that. And I think that that is what makes Twin Peaks stand above the rest of his work for me is that... Cheryl Lee and Laura Palmer are such in terms or in turns a tour de force actress and a tour de force character. And I think that Cheryl Lee's portrayal of Laura in the TV show and especially in this movie rise above whatever purient thing David Lynch was trying to do with this character from the outset. I think that she brings such a life to this character and that she takes what can be considered the worst of his impulses as a filmmaker and the worst, most mean streak that he has towards his female characters. And she turns it into something valuable because I find Lynch to be just an infuriating person. He is a visionary artist 
somebody who can make the most confusing thing I've ever seen. And he has no desire to explain any of it, which is fine. But I think that also he does a lot of this shit for the sake of doing it. And I see the the impact of his artistry throughout other things that I love. Like when I think about like Ari Aster, for example, as a filmmaker, I think that it's very clear that he is borrowing from the school of Lynch in that he is throwing a lot of shit at the screen and he doesn't feel like explaining it because it's just there because he likes it at the end of the day. And I'm a little fresh off of listening to the Faculty of Horror episode about Piwacket and Hereditary, so that might be why I'm like thinking of those two together. But I think that David Lynch is such a difficult person to parse, especially as a woman, as a film enthusiast, because he is so overarching in American film culture. But I think that so much of what he does is frankly repulsive. I think that Blue Velvet is, again, a really interesting piece of work and a deeply misogynist film text. It is something, like, there is just something about his work and I think that that is what makes it so hard for me to connect with it because on paper it makes sense and then in practice when I see it, it is upsetting and it is difficult and not in the way that I like films to be difficult it's difficult in that I can sense the way that it is exploiting the experiences of women and the way that it is sexualizing teenagers in the way that it is punishing women who do not conform and to understand all of that you have to understand the kind of person that David Lynch is and that he is an iconoclast and cultural purist at the same time somehow he grew up in the 1950s and is enamored with the purity of the 1950s and the way that it was like the good old days he was a huge reaganite which is so fucking embarrassing like for all of us (laughs) he because reagan was so focused on like getting back to those good old days he came under fire in 2016 for saying that like donald trump could be the greatest president ever just for disturbing the status quo so much. He later walked this back and kind of was like the division that Donald Trump is creating is bad. And I obviously support women and black lives matter and all of this stuff. But like he is the kind of dude that just kind of like does shit for the hell of it and has never really had to deal with the repercussions of it. And when looking at the way that he writes and films women and then looking at the way that he treats women in real life. Dude's been married four times and every single one of those relationships was like started by cheating on the previous one pretty much. Like Isabella Rossellini is on record saying that she had to go to therapy after he broke up with her because it was so traumatizing and that speaking with other women who had been with him was an enlightening process for her and that still he is like the great love of her life that she will never regret losing (laughs) like it that's a problem like it's a problem and it shows through and I think that so much of the issue is that he is the kind of man that idealizes a woman as I don't know like I think that he is so laid into this like virgin versus 
like the I'm sorry I think that he is so laid into the like Madonna versus whore ideology and he thinks that by taking these like bright and bubbly pictures picturesque American lives and showing like the dark seedy underbelly like I feel like he thinks he's really doing something and he's not because it I'm sorry, that, that's a really bold thing to say because, like, he is because his art is important and I, I do acknowledge that. But, like, it is not really revolutionary anymore to point out that there's something dark going on under the facade of American life. And I wouldn't even say that anymore we have a facade of good American life. I think that we have been thoroughly exposed to the world. And I, I think that the only way to engage with Lynch's work is to kind of view it as an artifact of the past and Twin Peaks is a great example of that in that it's basically a soap opera that has some trippy shit that happens and it has a lot of violence against women in it. And a lot of unseemly shit happens to teenage girls in this series. And it is really hard to reckon that truth with the truth of how many women are validated by Laura Palmer's character how many people are so deeply involved in the fandom of Twin Peaks people who have so many different opinions about feminism and misogyny and then also like love this show and I think that it I mean we talk about this on this podcast so often is that it it really is loving what you love, being critical of it, and trying to grapple with its legacy. And I am just rambling at this point. But, like, David Lynch is such a strange, hard person for me. And I I want to love him, and I feel like I have to hold him at arm's length. And I feel like that is the relationship that he has strove his entire life to create with women, to be a mysterious auteur that you want to know everything about and then to withhold that from you so that you can never fully know him. And that in and of itself is such a strange mind fuck of like emotional abuse that like watching him do it to multiple women in real life and then watching it play out in the female characters in his film is some truly disturbing shit. And this movie in particular is not easy. I did not enjoy watching it twice. I bought it on Blu-ray because I've like it's important to me and I felt that there was something so true about Laura's experience in this film that again I think it transcended whatever it was that David Lynch was trying to write because of the performance that Cheryl Lee gives so I don't know. I, I'm curious, I guess, what your longstanding relationship with David Lynch is because he's he's somebody that we kind of are always like dancing around, I feel like, where we're like, oh, we both don't really watch that. We both don't really engage with it until we do. So I don't know. I'll stop talking now and let you talk. I, I don't have nearly that much, <laughs> so I, I feel like I should just go. You got this. Um, no, like mine is, so mine is like much more simple. And I have like in that, I guess like I have kind of held like not intentionally held him at arm's length, but like intentionally not made a act huge act to like fix that. I saw a racer head when I was young, getting into movies like around the same time I watched Texas chainsaw massacre for the first time, but a racer head, I was like, I didn't finish it. 
I was just like, I don't know. This is unpleasant. I feel like I get it. Fatherhood, you know. Oh, that's so much how I feel about his movies. So I feel it's like, unpleasant, array, like, but I get it. <laughs> and then like my relationship from with like in like the decades since with Lynch is mainly through music. He put out like some out like music himself that I enjoyed. But then the big thing is he did Dark Knight of the Soul with Sparkle Horse and Danger Mouse. And so like that kind of became my main connecting point to Lynch's music, actually. And not even like the music he like not even his solo stuff, like the stuff he made with other artists. Um, and then this like and then that that was just kind of it. And then it's kind of just been like a lull for a couple of years. And like you, you hear things. But I haven't made a point to dig into it, it, partially because of situations like this, where it's like, I know I'll get into it one day, and I kind of like going in a little fresh. I don't want to know the, like, many, I, I don't want to know the variations of discourse that have happened necessarily before I see a movie. Like, frankly, I'm just going to reveal all my bias. I was like, I've never seen Citizen Kane. I still don't know what happens. I know it's like famous. I know something with Rosebud. I don't know what that is. I don't, I don't know what it is. And like, and so like, I'm going to be utterly familiar with Citizen Kane when I finally watch it, but like, I don't know what happens and I don't really know the discourse around it either because like, I haven't sought to avoid it, but I haven't dove into it, which maybe makes me blind in certain ways, but that's kind of what I was getting at before. Like, I don't like going into stuff informed because I think that can be, not the worst thing in the world, obviously, but like, I do feel like it would shape my opinions. Yeah. I mean, it's hard in, in the day and age that we live in to be surprised by a movie, which is why I think again, something like hereditary was so shocking and so revolutionary was because there was like a legitimate bait and switch around it. And I think that David Lynch and, some of his contemporaries like I don't know like I don't know I guess Quentin Tarantino is another good example of one is like one of the last big name directors who can probably have the pull of like oh we're excited that that dude is making a movie rather than it being about like the characters or the rest of it but I will say the thing about this film in particular is that it is Lynch. I was going to get into a bit more. Oh yeah, go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. I'm like, I'm like, I did, not, I want to get to your point, but I'm like, I don't think I'll be able to fit this in later. So like this year, this year, when I was like in the middle of my month of tonsillitis, that wouldn't go away. So that was like a weird suffering dream state in itself. I watched blue velvet for the first time. Um. <laughs> and like, I haven't gotten to like his relationship with women that like I will fully admit that was not the thing that first rose to my like that wasn't the first thing I thought of when I watched that movie. I I guess it is interesting to hear the context that he I I it's clear that he is enamored with like middle America, suburbia, etc. like the small town stuff. And I feel like some of the stuff I picked up and some of the stuff I read after the fact is like take it as like a fetish fetishization and like i don't know maybe it actually is if i read more but like from the perspective i had is like the weird like weirdness for the sake of weirdness like maybe but like as someone who grew up like exclusively in like small towns and like mid not middle america but the midwest i'm like i part of me is like it is 
it seems like he's fascinated with the dichotomy of like small town, like good, like closeness and good naturedness, but how like it is still like human society. And that's, there's a CD underbelly to it. And inevitably parts of those both worlds are connected. And I thought the weirdness, like it's obviously exceptionally weird, but it's like the weirdness is like that stuff that is there in everyday life. He is just putting it on the surface, but like, it's recognizable to me in many ways. I, I watched Blue Velvet at the time, and now I'm this Twin Peaks, so like this is the second full Lynch movie I've watched, so like the limits of what I've seen. But like that is one thing that kind of leapt out to me a bit, even like when the teens are talking and just like inane, like like inane shit, like them do like gobble gobble and stuff like that. I'm like, this is where I'm like, maybe I am like those boys reading too much into Lynch. But like, it's not the weirdness that like necessarily spoke to me, but I'm like, this really feels like how kids, like they are earnest and they mean what they say. And they're like, like being cutesy, but also like it's an ain't shit at the same time. I don't know. And like both like are equally true where it's like earnest and it matters and it's important to them, but also it's like impenetrable and weird. And that's how like it's relationship like with the youth, with youths and youths the subject of the movies I've seen anyway and with middle America, like that's what it felt like to me is it felt like Ernest, like this guy was from Montana, although wealthy from what I can tell um, throughout his entire life, which is important and part of the problem, but that's where um, that is kind of my entry point is like, I am fascinated by his fascination with middle America and the way that a number of people write it off as like, truly fetishizing it and i wasn't like i thought it seemed more like earnest and legitimately interested not like a hillbilly elegy thing but like uh i grew up in this and was fascinated by it but maybe he was just in it more but was still wealthy and that isn't important it'll be interesting like it'll be interesting to get more into it the fact and so you saying like he was a big reagan supporter and that he is truly fascinated. Like I thought he was fascinated. My impression having watched these two movies once each was that he was fascinated with like middle America, suburbia, like whatever in a, like definitely with fondness, but also like this rot that's in it. But that makes it sound like maybe there's more fondness and the rot is like not, he doesn't think about that, but I don't know. That is that is a complicating thing. I think as a person, as a privileged person, the issue is that he is fascinated by the spectacle of watching something beautiful become rotten, but that because he has benefited from the beautiful exterior his entire life, he, of course, fetishizes and wants to maintain that status quo so i believe that there is some sort like that there is a bit of a war inside of him of like and it is kind of a privileged rebellion in a way to grow up wealthy and to face none of the obstacles that his protagonists have faced to grow up to get to do quite literally whatever the fuck he wants in his personal life in his artistic life straight up telling his wives that he is going to put his movies before his kids forever and it does make it seem like more of a hillbilly elegy thing than I might have initially thought. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, it's weird because I, I don't think it's quite to that. I don't think it's quite that right. because I do think that anybody who grew up in that time frame does have a little bit more of a stake 
in it. And he spent more time culture. there. Like so, like the, I gotta, I gotta stop mentioning that. It's just like it's in the yeah. in the air. I've had a discussion about it the other day, but and I don't know. The thing about Firewalk with me too, though, is that it strips away that kind of curiosity with the mon- like with the mundane that the television show Twin Peaks has. It is Lynch at his honestly, I think at his darkest, at his most depraved, and. I think the reason people hated it so much when it came out is that it reminded them what Twin Peaks is about. Because having watched all of season one and like part of season two and a little bit of season three, like out of like all of season one in order and the rest of it kind of here and there, it's really easy to get caught up in the cutesiness of it because Dale Cooper is great a wholesome iconic character that I I wholeheartedly love I cannot I cannot and will not deny that and the coffee and the pie and the log lady and the fish and the percolator like all it's so easy to get caught up in all of these little idiosyncrasies and quotable moments and whatnot but at the heart of Twin Peaks the television show is that Laura Palmer is dead and that she is a teenager who ha- appeared to be perfect on the surface and was deeply troubled and deeply abused. And like that is, I think, what makes this movie work for me over all of his other things because the varnish is off. It is literally just a movie about a young girl who is trying to understand what has been done to her who is trying to cope with the experiences that she's lived through and who how I feel about the ending of the movie and watching her be brutally murdered notwithstanding at the end of the day Laura Palmer is a young woman who goes down fighting who refuses to be a vessel for something who destroys herself to prevent losing herself in a way because she knows that she's gone. She knows that she has slipped away from herself and can never come back. Not even just for herself either. There is the moment when she almost drags her friend into that world. And when, at least my read is that when she realizes what she's done, she freaks out and drags her out of there as like, like as part of the fighting, like, like I don't, it's, like she it's this doomed person who yeah. will not give up regardless. Yeah. yeah. I and I think that that is what makes her such a resonant character to so many women and, and to myself included. Like she is somebody who is fighting a losing battle who has no resources to help her whatsoever against a force that is greater than anything really cuz it's fucking demons. <laughs> and like but she refuses to become that thing. She, I don't know, it, it, it's, it's almost difficult to put into words because Laura spends so much of her time crying out for help and finding ways to cope with what has been done with her. And there are two scenes that really stick out in this movie for me. And one is dragging Donna out of the club and making sure that she is not raped, is not 
brought into this world because she knows that if that happens to her that it is a slow and steady descent and I think that a part of her too is afraid of these spiritual entities maybe deciding on a new host you know I think that there is such a a loneliness in understanding that like you alone have been saddled with this fate and realizing at a certain point there's nothing that you can do to stop it from happening to you but feeling that you can stop it from happening to somebody you care about and I think that that is what makes Laura such an ethereal figure throughout the television show is that she was something to everybody even though nobody really knew her and that is such a Lynchian thing of like this beautiful pure thing that was corrupted and ruined and destroyed violently before our eyes but like there's just something about Laura that makes her different from his other female protagonists. I, and I, I don't know that I will ever be able to put it into words because I feel it. I don't know what it is, but I feel it. And I understand why so many women resonate so strongly with Twin Peaks when I can sit here and talk for hours about how I truly think that David Lynch is probably an abusive misogynist and treats his wives terribly. But like he did something right when he created this character and when he cast this woman to play her that elevated it above his fetishization of her. And I think the the other scene that really brings that home is when Laura rushes home to try to discover the identity of Bob because she knows that he is a demon and she knows that he has a real face and is not just this, like, anonymous entity. And when she sees her father walk out of the house – there is this moment where she is just like screaming like, oh my God, no, it's not him. It's not him. And there is just a little moment where she is sobbing so hard that you can hear like the convulsive coughing that is happening. And there's just something so raw and real about that that I think that so many women can understand of like trying obviously this is a very extreme case of like incestuous rape but I think that many women have to come to terms with finding out that their father or their husband or a man that they felt that they understood is really a completely different person. In Laura's case I think that she is grasping that Yes, there is a supernatural entity called Bob who has been raping her since she was 12, but that entity exists inside of her father and that there is some part of her father that that demon was able to take root in. And I think that at the end of the film, when Leland is, you know, has her tied up and has the diary pages that were missing and he's saying, I don't understand this. I thought you always knew it was me. I think he's confessing something to her and also saying, I thought we had an agreement, you know, because there is this really sick and twisted relationship that can often grow in incestuous relationships and in that you become codependent and you become like you are psychologically damaged by it forever. And I think it was just as devastating for him to realize that she was not in on it like he thought she was and that he has like been doing this to her the whole time it's 
I don't know. And and Lynch talks about it as like, yes, it's about Laura, but it's also about like the internal devastation of the man. And like, honestly, I could give a fuck about that. That is not what's important about this, but it is another interesting layer of it. And I think when we compare and contrast both of these stories, they're both about women trying to defy a conventional society to seek freedom and Laura is doing it in a way that is completely different than Mona because she does not have individualistic freedom. She has what she thinks is freedom, but is really in service to the men around her. But like they both engage in behaviors that are atypical for their age and gender. But like I think the difference is that Laura is an object and Mona never is. Like the difference between these two auteurs is that these two characters in my head are kind of two sides of the same coin, but Vagabond respects Mona in a way that Firewalk With Me will never respect Laura. Like, there is something about having, like, the steady hand of a woman documenting a story who respects what happened and how it came to be that is so different from a man honestly kind of masturbating over the destruction of this ideal girl like we are asked to suffer with Laura whereas we only observe Mona like we have no choice but to sympathize with Laura whereas we can distance ourselves from Mona it's it's such a strange dichotomy and I feel that they both they work as a piece together because of how different they are and because the central conceit is so similar in like a genuine way (laughs) Um, obviously I didn't yeah, that's fascinating. And I, like, I just even thinking of like, um, what is the line from Vagabond where like when something bad happens, she talks about how she just moves on or whatever. And even just the way like that could like that sentence would mean like it like that couldn't happen in Firewalk with me in a way just like it'd be too fraught. Like, I don't know. Well, and I think part of it, too, is that the character in Vagabond has already made peace with her identity and that the identity she chooses ends up being her downfall. Whereas with Laura, she didn't choose this. It happened upon her and she struggles against it the entire time. And really like at the end of it, Mona's death is an eventual tragedy. Whereas Laura's death is a traumatic tragedy that in the end though ends up being kind of peaceful because she doesn't have to fucking fight it anymore. It's just over. It is like even the journeys that these two characters are on clearly, obviously on like the base perspective, both of these women and their stories are crafted by like some disrespect to Mark Frost in how I'm going to phrase this, but like by a single, by an auteur, by a single vision. And like funneled through an actress, yeah. um, but they still feel so they, they they just feel different in that what Varga has crafted feels like a natural, like like and just the way it's structured is we are we are those outsiders we are those bystanders who she stumbles along the way like we are viewing her from the outside even as we are seeing you more than any other outside viewer single outside viewer sees. And it's it still feels more like we are like something has been documented, to put it simply. Whereas Twin Peaks Firewalk with Me is much more like a crafted 
story and tale that may resonate in certain areas or reflect certain things in society but like is still just like like is meant like in so many more ways like a crafted story but the opacity of what lynch does whether it be like the weirdness or just the not talking about it kind of allows for more like nuance and interpretation that might not be there and maybe we can even give him some credit in saying like that's what he wants is that like like the op- that is the point of the like opacity is to create that space where like there is nuance and interpretation but it's just different yeah. still fundamentally and i think too for as much as i struggle with perceiving myself as a fan of david lynch i don't think that cheryl lee gives this performance without completely trusting him and i think that that kind of singular vision and partnership between a director and an actress is rare and i think that something really special happens here in that that this is just an all-time performance Scenes that would read as over-the-top and melodramatic in any other person's hands play here, and they work. And the way that she brings life to a character that she was literally cast to just be painted up and play dead in a tarp for, like, a day or two is nothing short of miraculous. Like, I... there, There is a reason that this show lives on in the memory of so many film and tv nerds there's a reason why people go back to it over and over again and it is because the characters themselves are real in a way that movie they're grimy and real in a way that movies and tv often don't let their characters be and i think that it's important to kind of place it in the context of what television was like in the early 90s and how this was something like an interloper in everybody's like primetime cable feel good sitcom time. And we're spoiled now in that we have so much TV that I'm almost sick of TV. And like this was a revolution. And like that has to be examined alongside all of the rest of it i guess and there is something about lynch too where it's just like there is something about it in like his like particular idiosyncrasies like that imitation just like fail like straight like imitation just fails (laughs) like you just can't do it like there is something there um oh i guess like that's ultimately this movie (laughs) let's reveal one more blind spot so i watched the Nightcomers, which is like essentially a prequel to The Innocents, that just makes explicit a lot of things that happened there. And watching that movie, I came to like came to the thought like that was a well crafted, but like I don't know what to do with it. I haven't seen The Innocents, and so like and then I read stuff after coming to that and just seemed to be like some like like people being mad like be, being like this what is the point of making the subtext text it just like demystifies it um but in like in that sense like in that case it was like i don't like this feels like something where like i have the basic gist of what the like source material that is being prequelized has that and it's enough where i can like grasp what's happening here but this can't stand without it yeah and i guess like i of course i am like 
one of how many people who actually has watched Twin Peaks Firewalk with me without having seen any other Twin Peaks. But I do think there is something about it where that is like the things you're talking about. I can only, I have glimpses of them in the movie, but like, it's part of what also makes the movie like in a kind of a surprising sense. Cause this is a thing that film criticism talks a lot about now about sequelization and prequelization things having to stand on each other, but like it's been happening for decades in just not in as assembly line of fashion. Like this is another prequel, like which it is so tied to the show that it kind of can't stand on its own. I can engage with it based on like cultural familiarity. And even with like Kyle McLaughlin as Dale Cooper, like something shines through there, even though he feel like he's not core to what actually happens in the movie for the most part, there's still something that shines through there. But yeah, it's really like, for me, it's like, it's Lauren Leland and everyone else is kind of incidental and only matter because of how they relate to Laura. Not even Leland has that power in the movie. It's like all about everyone else only matters in so much as how they relate to Laura, which is like fascinating, but also like, like, and like, I think kind of cool. It's cool in that. So like, if you watch Twin Peaks, the television show, the entire cast of characters is defined by Laura's absence from them. So it's a nice little like slotting in of the last puzzle piece in a way. And I think that that's really the only context that you would be 100% missing. I haven't watched the television show in five or six years. I think it was like 2014 when I went through it all. I started to rewatch the episodes and immediately remembered that the pilot is so fucking boring, (laughs) which is another problem with Twin Peaks. Like why I think that fire walk with me works better for me. One, it's closer to being an outright psychological horror movie, which is obviously going to be more my jam based on everything you all know about me. Two, I think that like stripping away all of the extra stuff and forcing it into a two-hour narrative improves the mythos of it in a way in that you have to remember that this is the story of this girl and the people who failed her and how they will eventually have to reckon with it. And My impression is that like this is the point of Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me is to like tell Laura Palmer's story. Or, like, to assert that it is her story. Yeah, and I think part of it and not was... not Twin Peaks story, even though the show was called Twin Peaks. Yeah, well, and that's, like, part of it is that David Lynch basically was like, yeah, I couldn't stop thinking about Laura, and I wanted... I was obsessed with her, and I wanted to make her, like, a quote-unquote real character. And, like, that's fine. And, again, I think that that speaks to a certain level of fetishization of, like, a fallen angel archetype that then... Cheryl Lee is able to turn into this incredibly moving, real, heartbreaking character. Like, there, I. It seems kind of inexplicable that it's the same actor, or not inexplicable, inextricable that it's the same actress, too. Like, if it weren't the same actress, it wouldn't. It would it remove its power. Yeah. I, and I think that the partnership between them is something really special. And I think, again, that it's part of the reason that Twin Peaks is just like an enduring piece of cultural iconography and i think that that is where i struggle with lynch in general is that i have to acknowledge (laughs) the fact that he is a figure that looms large in this 
art form that I love. He makes things that I really like, but they're things that also are viscerally upsetting to me. And it's hard for me to separate that in the way that I can from other films because he is so just like putting it in your face (laughs) about how this is how he feels and he wants you to watch this. And Twin Peaks The Return, which is the third season, also, you know, faced a lot of criticism for the fact that most of the brutalization on screen was of women. And it's something that happens in his movies and in the TV show. And I don't know. I I feel like he wants to grapple with that and that impulse in himself and I feel like he keeps putting these things on screen to try and figure it out not realizing that by continuing to put them on screen it is feeding into the problem and it's just such a strange avenue to arrive at of like I don't want to call myself a David Lynch fan I don't want to deny the impact that he has on film and I don't want to deny the impact that this movie had on me But I also want to make sure to give credit to the other people involved in it because we get so caught up in auteur theory that it's easy to forget that, like, without Cheryl Lee, Twin Peaks never is as special as it is. Yeah, also I'm a real dummy because I just realized I saw Mulholland Drive. (laughs) Wait a minute. I watched that around the time I watched A Race Ride. And that that was... And I bet it was equally as comprehensible to you at that time. I didn't think it was as incomprehensible as people made it out to be to me, but well, I maybe I was just trying to be a very special boy. And that's the thing, too. That is really another huge issue with Lynch's filmography is that it lends to some real special boys thinking they are really special boys. And that's, I guess, so to wrap it up, I guess, like, maybe that is where we should focus, is that there are so many women who resonate with this character and with this story who are lost a little bit to the fanboying over Lynch and the conspiracy theories and the like picking out of details and endless millions of Reddit threads trying to figure out what like one little blink here or there meant and that the way that we can engage with these works and claim them for ourselves in the first place is to kind of focus on that aspect of the fandom and to give voice to that over the rest of it because I think that when I think of Twin Peaks as a cultural artifact that's what I want to remember it for is for the women who experienced you know sexual assault and trauma and incest in real life who felt seen and who felt given a voice by this character and to not downplay the importance of that overall. No. Nuance. What a fun episode. <laughs> I did legitimately. I, I no, 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 no. I just it's so it's so dark. Like, sorry, we were gone for four months. Time to be depressed. <laughs> I, I don't know what it is about Vagabond that just like it doesn't. Even though like it should be depressing, it's something about just the. You know, but like Twin Peaks, that's just purely depressing. Really, really fucking depressing. And we we both fall on the side. It's like similar with The Shining in that like uh, those additional details, like all that additional ephemera and what every little thing means. It's like that can be cool. 
but also it should not be necessary from the interpretation of a movie. What like regardless of directorial intent, you know? I will say that to Lynch's credit, he doesn't really give a shit because he doesn't want to talk about it. So he doesn't even want to give vision to his authorial intent, which honestly is kind of interesting and radical in its own way. And even if it is a a shield for like, I just didn't think of it. And honestly, maybe some more dudes should, uh, should embrace that because like one of the things i said about um what's his name and joker since we already brought it up already is like if he just shut up i might have given like i might have liked that movie more because the dude won a fucking golden lion and still went around saying he was persecuted just be quiet i straight up like if we're gonna let talk me about think it, you actually gave a shit about like any of it mental health or societal yeah. like structures or whatever oh. don't all right, we're not we're not ending this talking about Joker. We can't do it. Um, if you haven't seen this movie, it's it's and if you haven't seen the show, it's it's hard to engage with. I think that the I think that the the first season of Twin Peaks is worth it as its own curio. Again, the pilot is boring. I'm not going to lie to you; it's boring. But the rest of the season is in is good enough that like I was I was intrigued by it. Um, the show really rolls off the rails when you solve the mystery, quote unquote, and like it. But I think that it's worth watching that first season and then I and then watching this movie to kind of slot it together. I think that that's really, to me, what is worth engaging with in the Twin Peaks universe. And I think that overall, I don't know. I don't I don't really have a great like closing statement. Well, so, I mean, it kind of like is fitting for like everything you said about Lynch, though, where it's like you don't want to call yourself a fan, but you also don't like hate and reject his work outright. It's yeah. just like it's a nuance. He is like a difficult, like an undeniable but very difficult person, director. Yeah. Whereas Varda is an undeniable but lauded person who I can so easily embrace. And it's just like trying to wrestle with those two feelings on directors into like vaguely similar storylines was a really interesting exercise that I kind of put together by accident. And I'm kind of, I'm quite glad that we embarked on. And I'm glad I've seen an Agnes Varda film now and been reminded that I've seen more Lynch than I realized, but more so that I'm glad that I've seen (laughs) Vagabond. And now I'm like, all right, I got a checklist of other things to watch. And just. Yeah. So Thank you for being on this weird journey with us as we are working our way through some more intellectual and serious films. Um, sorry that I got married and ruined everything and made us take a break. Liked getting married, though. Uh, but yeah, so that concludes our episode on Vagabond and Twin Peaks Firewalk with me. If you want to talk to us on social media about Twin Peaks, because I'm sure people have really strong opinions on it, you can tweet us at Pod. You can find us under that same name on Instagram. You can find this episode and other episodes on our website, which is ltrfi.com. If you want to be a guest on this show or talk about something or anything that isn't going to fit in a tweet, go ahead and send us an email at ltrfipod at gmail.com. Last but not least, I know we are quite literally the worst content creators of all time. But if you would like to give us money for some reason, we have tiers as low as $1 starting. We're going to catch up on our Patreon, <laughs> which is patreon.com slash LTRFIPod. Um, as always, really grateful to have this space to talk about these feelings and to have a friend like Tyler to talk about them with. 
Um, but yeah, so until next time, where we will be discussing insert movies here in editing later. Lynch is a weird dude and Varda is a cool lady. I don't know. I don't even have a good ending right now. Varda deserves her legend? Yeah. Go watch an Angus Varda movie? Yeah, just do it. Go go watch Vagabond. I'm probably going to go with One Sings, The Other Doesn't next just to get some levity in there. So until next time, uh, we will catch you later. <laughs>